Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro, the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with low and transparent fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your crypto portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world, myself included, to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account at eToro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at CryptoMining.Tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Links are in the show notes. Untold Stories is powered by BlockWorks Group, the only event and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Throughout the early days of the Bitcoin space, which eventually developed into the blockchain, you know, altcoin space, but originally in the Bitcoin space, you couldn't be involved in the space without knowing that the big elephant in the room is Silk Road. Um, my background in the space has run through, like, um, has weaved, my story has Silk Road weave through it. And most early Bitcoin people have some interaction with the Silk Road. And as much as you say how bad it was, which it was, the concept of having a free market that's not controlled by any single party is that libertarian anarcho-capitalist view. And if it wasn't for Silk Road, Bitcoin, in fact, the whole space that we know about it today, um, wouldn't wouldn't exist. Um, and you have to admit that. And so you look back at the early days of Napster, and we all know what Napster is like. We all, um, we all, but most of my listeners here um, have probably used Napster, LimeWire, eDonkey, one of those torrenting sites to download, of course, um, legal music and legal movies, of course, 100%. And that eventually, that technology, you know, that was so bad. And all the music industry would talk about how bad it was and the MPAA and, you know, the FBI would have the, the, the big banner when you watch a movie. This is the worst technology in the world. We should make it all illegal. If it wasn't for that technology, you wouldn't have Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora. None of that would exist. All the technology was moved over. My next guest, Brian Hoffman, realized that the technology behind the Silk Road, which would then became Dark Market, it the ideas behind it are good and the technology behind it are good. And that's what really makes Bitcoin and the crypto economy here 
something that is so important. And so he took it upon himself when probably the whole world told him it was a bad idea to fork that technology and to launch Open Bazaar. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, that's quite an intro. <laughs> what do you think about what I just said? Yeah, no, I, I think it's like uh, it's clearly one of the most uh, fundamental drivers of Bitcoin in the early days is the Silk Road. I mean, there's no, there's clearly no other uh, more basic. For better use or for case. worse, it is what it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, you have a currency. You've you've gone to the lengths of proving that transferring value works. But what's next? I mean, it's it's trading and exchanging goods and services for that currency. So, um, yeah, it just it just was a no brainer. I think. It clearly did uh, do so a little bit of gaslighting across the world with it being so focused purely on illicit goods. I mean, it's, it's hard to think what a Silk Road would have done if it had been more broad. But, um, but you know, clearly that was where people were interested in using Bitcoin initially. So, Of course, in any new form of money or any new form of, of information um, or any new technology, it's the ones that are being pushed out of the of the other systems that are constantly looking for new ways to do whatever they're doing are the ones that are going to go to that new technology first. It's not to say that it'll always be like that, but look at the credit card industry, right? Like there's a movie, all my listeners should watch it, it's called Middlemen. And this movie talked about how using credit cards over the internet um, wasn't pioneered until the adult entertainment industry actually was the one who pioneered it. Because here you have an industry where people want instant gratification in adult entertainment online, and you can't mail a check or pay cash with that. But the, the technology to do credit card uh, processing over the internet wasn't really there yet. Yeah, that's true. And people often forget that the first e-commerce transaction on the internet was actually uh, a marijuana deal uh, between college students, I believe it, Harvard, was it really? I, can't, I can't remember exactly where. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, early adopters are the fringe fringe users for sure. Um, yeah, but I mean, generally, though, those fringe users don't become, you know, 100 millionaires and billionaires like we're seeing with crypto. So <laughs> there's clearly like an even more complex uh, result coming out of this because you're creating wealth, not just economic opportunities. So, um you know, it's, it's interesting to see the first like era of Bitcoin early adopters kind of grow into this more mature, you know, more wealthier. <laughs> did know. we grow or did we just kind of be pushed aside? Well, I mean, I think it's certainly what uh, you mean, the early adopter group, like the like the people. Yeah. I mean, like, do you think we've grown up? Are we just still those people but wearing suits and ties now? I, I only wear flip flops, actually. You know this, but um, <laughs> yeah. Have we been like pushed aside or have we grown up and now like we're like the big boys in the room? Yeah, no, I, I think that there are certainly some some folks who have kind of parlayed what what they got early on into, you know, other businesses and, and things like that. You know, we clearly have like the Coinbases and the Geminis and all these, you know, this, I mean, it, w it wasn't that long ago that like everybody, it was just like kind of a rumor that the Winklevoss twins were going to get these coins and then they did and what are they going to do with it? And now it's like this like very mature exchange business that's regulated and all this stuff, you know, and like that, that, ha that has happened very quickly, like much more quickly than any of the other areas of the financial industry. So um, in that respect, it has matured and grown. Uh, in other cases, you have, you know, folks like, you know, maybe yourself and, and like, you know, Fluffy Pony and, and others that are just kind of 
you know, they're still doing what we're doing, you know, and, and it's just part of the, of the community. So, uh, yes and no, I guess. Did you, you just, um, put me in the same category as, as fluffy pony. That's I'm flattered by that. Thank you. <laughs> it's hard to put anybody in his category really, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think I think it goes it goes towards like um, what people don't realize that the biggest trolls online like yourself and and that's a compliment, by the way, and um, Ricardo, Fluffy Pony and all these other guys, well, Panda in real life, they're actually some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Oh, yeah, definitely. I remember meeting Ricardo in person the first time. I think it was at Sushi Roundtable. And uh, yeah, we just had a great conversation. And, and you know, I mean, I, I think. We, we all have a lot of like overlap on our, our ideals. That's how we ended up here in the beginning. I think online, there tends to be a lot of like, you know, uh, tribalism and, and fighting back and forth or people misconstrue statements or you shoot your mouth off about someone who has a connection to someone else and just becomes this huge brouhaha. But, you know, one of the things that was so interesting about this, this early kind of punk rock movement of Bitcoin was just that there were some odd characters and like it was, there's a lot to criticize. There's a lot to comment on. There's a lot to compliment. It's, it's, it's messy, but that's what made it fascinating. I mean, a lot of ways, if we all went to go work at some like very black tie financial firm doing Bitcoin, we'd probably get bored of it and leave anyway. Like these personalities are not the type of people that uh, lend themselves to that kind of work. But what you, what you did in 2014, like rarely do you get, rarely do you get, like pivotal moments that really show that crossover between the crazy early adopters into the next wave of businessmen and people that are going to really make this thing um, what it became. And so in 2014, when you forked Dark Market, um, which was, um, if I recall, Amir, Amir Taki was one who was really pushing for Dark Market he, Amir Taki, who's a very, 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 very polarizing figure in the early crypto days, who's pretty much forgotten, never talked about in the new circles. Um, most people don't know who he is. If you bring him up at a crypto conference, it's only like, you know, the old wise men with the beards. Oh, I remember that young whippersnapper, but no one really know, remembers him. But he was such a polarizing figure in the early days. Um, and then when you did, and what was interesting was he... He basically said, I want to take Silk Road. I want to take the technology behind it and I'm going to build out dark market. And I remember it. I have to, I have to tell you, he came to my house. I was on house arrest. He came to my house in 2014, came to my parents' basement in Brooklyn and showed me the demo of dark market and said, I'm going to demo this in a few weeks at a conference. And no one knows about this yet. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. What are you calling it? And he said, I'm calling it dark market. And then it was a few weeks later um, when you decided to take dark market and launch Open Bazaar. Can you tell me how that all happened? Because that was the pivotal moment from you saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is really good technology. But if we, if we launch it as dark market, then we're not really changing who we are. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that he had his fingers in, you know, in the early days that like were so impactful. Um, especially on, on my perspective of things, because when I came into the space, you know, I, as a programmer and I wanted to figure out how to like get involved with Bitcoin development, but you know, the Bitcoin core product is pretty high bar of excellence to try and participate. You're doing proofreading or, or, you know, <laughs> things like that, copy reading. 
um, to get started. And so, you know, Amir had started uh, Live Bitcoin, which was, you know, a complete alternative implementation of Bitcoin. Uh, and, you know, they were building a completely different full node software stack, which was like crazy because it's, you know, everybody was saying that we don't need another one. And it's like too complicated to do, but he was doing it. And then they were, then they built Dark Wallet, which was like this, you know, it was like thumbing. I remember Dark Wallet, was like, yeah. I think it was like the highest crowd raised Bitcoin product at the time. You know, I think they raised like 20,000 or something, 50,000, like not, not much money by today's standards uh, to do Dark Wallet, which was thumbing its nose at the, you know, regulatory and stuff like that basically just built for for money laundering and, and, and mixing and, and things like that and they were proud of that and then took that dark that dark mark that dark branding and they parlayed it into this dark market concept which was an extension of that and it seemed brilliant it was like there's all these like very like you know it's almost kind of has the same feel as like the samurai guys have now where they're just you know it's just like very sure. intense privacy privacy focused anarchy but samurai um, is more focused on privacy and and allowing you to have your own keys. Amir's dark wallet was like anarchist in the negative sense. And I want to be um, completely away from the government and be this dark and allow any type of listings and that branding and that, you know, mantra, if you launch with that, um, that may at the time not have been what most people in the space were motivated by no i think he opened up people's minds to like what the potential of something like bitcoin could have on the entire world you know it's like i remember when i forked dark market uh like that first week wired magazine like called me on my phone like i still don't know how they even got my cell phone number but you know they called me and they were just like oh my god this is gonna this kind of concept is going to destroy the world like what happens if you know and fiat goes away and the marketplaces are all black markets and you know it was like this is very tantalizing vision of like well what happens if we just blow up the incumbent you know trade world well what let's let's go through the thought experiment here for a second like what what happens if if that would have happened well i mean i think over the last 10 years we've realized it's, it's a very hard thing to do i mean to unseat that kind of uh you know the, the world's economy is, is massive um you know, as, as successful as Bitcoin has been, it's still nowhere near unseating all of that. Um, but what would happen if it did? I mean, it's hard to say. I think it would take quite a while. And, but it, it could change it in many, many, many interesting ways. I mean, like, think about, like, states' borders. I mean, once, once you know, there's no, once a digital currency is literally the, the world's, you know, uh, reserve currency. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, you're going anywhere, anytime. Spend your money equally wherever you go. Well, there's two different um, schools of thought on that, right? So there's the school of thought that that and and you know this very well. The school there's two schools of thought. This the one school of thought is that Bitcoin will become this um, global currency for all to use, like consumers, right? Like me and you transacting. And the other school of thought who won't outright say it, but this is what they want and what they see and what they're building towards is Bitcoin becoming this global reserve settlement currency between all these other currencies and payment systems around the world. And I've had guests on the show advocate that. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to sit in and push on one of those so hard, like in a, in a very passionate fashion, because I'm not really sure what happens there. I, I could see either option being likely, but you know, I mean, I think early on we, we just kind of 
assumed that Bitcoin would be this like the strongest currency and it would be very like fluid and you'd be able to transfer it and the fees would be low. I mean, I remember we were always pitching Bitcoin as the lowest cost, you know. Dude, I would pitch yeah, it as free. free. I would it say like it was negligible. free. I would never even say that it would have any fees. I would say it's free. Yeah, when we started Open Bazaar, I think the the fees were four or five cents. I mean, that was just negligible. I mean, I remember pitching. Yeah, it was so minuscule. The wallet. Yeah, I remember when we talked to the investors in 2015. We were still like, you know, this is like a free marketplace essentially. You know, like in all aspects, and and now it's it's shifted a lot. And I mean, part of that is growing pains of a network where people are not positive how they're going to scale it. And, you know, how else do you continue being positive and optimistic about that outlook if you if you don't know how to solve that problem? You invent layer two. You, in, you come up with different positions of what it is. Uh, and, you know, I mean, if layer two does work out, then maybe layer one is more of a settlement layer. I, 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 don't, I don't know how that would work exactly. I've heard really great arguments either way. But, you know, I... That's not my specialty. I don't focus daily on the, on that aspect of it. I'm not an economist. I'm not, you know, building Bitcoin core right now. So, you know, I just kind of try to stay up on, on those topics. But I mean, ideally for our business and our project, you know, it makes sense to have some kind of viable transactional currency that doesn't your, cost too much. Your your business is a, is a socioeconomic experiment because your business is, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, your business is, is building a uh, the ability for people to have, you know, virtually lemonade stands in their houses and allow them to transact with anyone anywhere in the world, person to person. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I think you know as that grows and matures, you you, you could see it expand into even business to business and business to consumer and all kinds of different models because that underlying technology is is reusable, is it's scalable. Um, in a much more different way than, than Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin, you know, there's only a finite amount of space in the blockchain. And, you know, people kind of fight over that resource. And the way that our network is built is much more similar to like BitTorrent, where the more people that use it, it actually gets more uh, more efficient. Um, so, you know, I, I think trade is, a, is a, you know, the currency piece of it is where, where a challenge lies, you know, the payments piece. I mean, we've had to expand beyond okay. just offering Bitcoin because of that, that that constraint. But, you know, I mean, in terms of the network and, and the way that trade ha- actually happens on the Internet, it, it, that, that's infinitely scalable. Well, I think that's in the value of that's in the um, the whole concept of free market is you should allow anyone to use whatever currency they want to use. And so the more people that are that are on the um, open bizarre platform. It's similar to the way BitTorrent works, where you have more seeders and you have more people and more connections to each other and more nodes, and it allows it allows the the technology and the the network to grow. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, building large peer to peer networks, which is essentially what Open Bazaar is, uh, is, is not easy. I mean, people have gone to it and gone away from it millions of times. And in fact, you know, why? Um, because centralization is just so tantalizing. I mean, if you don't really have a need for decentralization, then why would you choose something that's slower to build, harder to build, more expensive to run? See, this is what I don't get. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I, I can't wrap my head around this. I had I had a guest on the show the other day, and she 
she is a consultant for enterprise blockchains. And I just don't, I couldn't wrap my head around it the whole show. And when you listen to it, you can really hear me struggle with this. And I think I flat out said, I said, centralization is so much better for your, for your clients. It's faster. It's simpler. It's technologically easier. Um, why the, in God's name, do they need decentralization? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I was talking to someone last yeah, night. I was like, it. yeah, a friend's trying to figure out how to get healthcare onto the, you know, health records onto the blockchain. And, and I actually came from health records before Bitcoin. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm oh, like, did you really? I don't, I don't understand it. You know, I mean, I think that there's this kind of feeling that maybe like this new technology, it's, it's so different when you don't understand what it really is, that you're like, oh, this could solve all our problems. This is the next cloud. And it's not the next cloud. I mean, cloud, and but even cloud was just a rebranding of things that we already had, data centers, you know, so. It's it, it's with any new thing that seems cool. I'll, I'll give you another example that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. And everyone thinks, everyone's going to think I'm crazy for even using this example, but it just popped into my head. Where you live, do you have traffic lights or do you have those roundabouts? Oh yeah, definitely traffic lights. Okay, yeah. so America for all my European friends here, America loves traffic lights and we don't have roundabouts. It's just not a thing. It's, it's in fact, Americans don't even know how to use roundabouts. Where I live in Florida, the city manager, I think he traveled to Europe a few years ago and he fell in love with these roundabouts and he's been putting roundabouts in every single, in every single intersection in our city. So Brian, when you come, when you visit Florida with your family or anyone visits and you come to Southwest Florida, you will see roundabouts everywhere. And the problem is people don't know how to use them. Um, and so the running joke is that we're going to actually put roundabouts in our houses now. <laughs> so like the hallway between my bathroom and my bedroom, I'm going to put a roundabout there because it's new technology. And we get so excited about it. We just kind of use it for everything. Yeah. I mean, when all you have is a, you know, is a, is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So uh, it, it's true. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I've had that problem with... It's not a bad idea to experiment though. No, no, certainly. I think... Uh, you know, I was dying. I was, I worked at Booz Allen Hamilton before Bitcoin and, and that's where, you know, Edward Snowden worked. And, and, you know, I, within that company, I was trying very hard to push for exploration to blockchain. And I think the only thing that we ever were actually using it for was um, assisting law enforcement to try and track down, you know, transactions and things like that. Um, there was no interest in actually trying to apply it to some kind of problems within the company or for our clients. They thought that was stupid, which, you know, maybe it was, uh, but they had no interest in it. And, you know, it's funny, like a year after I left, they, they started a whole blockchain practice. And, so you, and uh, they're, they're very into it. But. So you studied computer science at James Madison University, and then you eventually, um, your career started. Um, you worked on a lot of government projects that I'm sure you can't tell us about. And you did some DOD. You worked with Booz Allen Hamilton, which everyone knows if you've heard of Edwin Snow Edward Snowden, um, who actually just spoke at a Bitcoin conference last week. But so how did you so I have two questions. How and why that's one question. How and why did you jump to Bitcoin? Um, and two, what was that like working on these 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 classified programs? Yeah, sure. So when I left school I'm just, I I'm interested. This is cool. Yeah, so when I left school, I got the job offer to work at Booz Allen, which is not weird for people in this area. I mean, DC area is all government contractors for the most part. But um, I went to that team and we were working on uh, identity 
stuff. So, you know, biometrics, um, user authentication, things like that. And we were using these old LDAP directories, like old school technology to, to track, you know, you know, uh, identity information. And then it was graduated into databases. And then, you know, then it started, oh, we want to share these identity databases across different clients and, you know, be able to identify people across different services, like single sign-ons, stuff like you that. Can, you can type in Charlie and then, you know, scan every video camera around the world and find oh, them. Oh, you'd be amazed at, like, the kind of stuff we were building, like, way back in, like, 2005, 2006. We had, we had this, uh, this eye scanner technology that um, it, it was used at, like, military bases at their gates, and it would be able to ident- identify, like, every participant in a, you know, every person in a vehicle from, like, you know, 100 yards away and run it against an identity database to see if it was, no. there was like some unknown individual in the car. And it could do it if you were like laying down and all this stuff. It was, it was crazy. What if there was a mannequin in the car? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know hey if it would detect like a fake person, but uh, I mean, it would certainly be able to identify that it was a real person there and that they were not in That's the crazy. database. Um, and, they were, and we were testing that kind of stuff like on top of parking garages, like in Northern Virginia, we like the parking garage like a mile away or, we, you know, 100, 100 yards away. We'd try and, like, run these tests. I mean, we're doing all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And in our lab, we had all the latest and greatest, like, retina scanners and things to get in. It was really, really interesting stuff. But, you know, one of the things that was, was weird about it was that we had these, like, feder- these like clunky federated systems that you had to, like, set up and configure. And, and you know, it was, it was weird. And, and it used PKI, uh, Public Key Infrastructure, you know, in order to like track identities and stuff. And so can they, can they crack like AES 256 and PKI and things like that? Um, you know, I, I have some friends that, uh, have worked at NIST and, and, and still do. And, uh, they, they claim that there's a lot of work being done that we'd be very surprised about in terms of like quantum cryptography and things like that. So I have no doubt that, uh, that stuff is coming. I don't know the real state of it because, have to be working there to know and I, I have it out was bitcoin safe or hardware wallet safe i think at the moment yeah i really do um not, i don't care about the moment i mean <laughs> like 10 years down the road i i really think there's going to have to be some game plan for moving i i, I do I, I think if there's moving what you're moving into some other options you know like some some kind of cryptography that's that's more safe you know and, and well luke Desheer and others have have said that they're interested in doing that you know if if technology exists to break um, the cryptography that's used now. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the things that I'm worried about is like, if there's people that have put like lots of money into like trust or something, or they, they can't touch these things, like how are they going to move them? I mean, I'm not sure about the mechanics, but you know, I, I thought I remember reading like people like, you know, some of the people like Blockstream have like locked up their coins for a certain period of time. Like what happens if there's some kind of vulnerability and you don't have the ability to Remove things. Yeah, you use time lock verifying yeah. things you like know? that. And, and, of course, and lightning is like all built on top of a lot of this stuff. So, you know, what happens? So, um, yeah, I, I think that there are things that we have to be thinking about. And but you know, the government will. Ne- it, it's not like the government's going to like. Okay, we did it. Hey, everybody, it's out. <laughs> They're going to be using it for like years, probably before we even know that it exists. I mean, that's just the way it is. I I, I, well, I worked on. Uh, I was about to be working on the project right before I left uh booze and you know it was related to working with classified agencies and these things and uh you know what they were pitching as possible and what they were already doing with bitcoin was kind of scary i mean it was just i mean they weren't they're not stupid they're they're looking at these things so what what type of technology existed before we knew about it 
Um, well, I heard like the military used like, GPS years before we even. Yeah, you know, I mean that's it. a good example. Um, as far as I know, Tor. I mean that that came out of the Naval Research Lab in, you know. Oh, Moscow. good point. Yeah, no, that was it. How did that happen? How did something like Tor that that was like a big, um, Tor was such a big tool for the government at the Navy Research Lab, um, became such a tool for the privacy movement worldwide well, now? I mean, How did that happen? Think about these agencies. I mean, you have you have CIA, which is you know clandestine, so you know they're looking for. I mean, their agents go into other countries, and it's not like those countries sanction that kind of stuff, right? They're spies. So they're coming in no, and they're trying not. to use cutting edge spying technology, the things that we're trying to prevent attacks from others with, right? But they're exploiting it. So if you think about like Bitcoin, let's say you, you know, Bitcoin's used for money laundering. Well, hell yeah, the CIA is going to use it for the same thing, right? Like how do we get money for, for tactical missions in other countries? So is this, do you think the CIA and other governments are using crypto even early on in order to, to help with various activities oh, around sure the world? I'm sure of it. And you know what's even weirder is that you have agencies so like FBI who are like the law enforcement arm and they're trying to bust this. So they're trying to find these technologies to crack on, crack down on them, and the CIA is trying to find them to exploit them. It's like a com- conflicting kind of uh, a perspective on what cryptocurrencies are for. Etoro's crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world, with low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account today at etoro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. As a mining equipment broker, Scott Offord wants to make sure his clients are well-informed and making data-backed business decisions. Scott created the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI for miners. It's a better way to compare the efficiency of various models of ASIC miners and to see how the price of the miner and the efficiency impacts your mining profitability. So check it out at CryptoMining.Tools and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D. S-C-O-T-T. You have agencies like FBI who are like the law enforcement arm and they're trying to bust this. So they're trying to find these technologies to crack on, crack down on them and the CIA is trying to find them to exploit them. It's like a com- conflicting kind of uh, a perspective on what cryptocurrencies are for. Well, when the government does it, it's okay. But when we do it, it's not. I mean, that's what their, their motto is. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much anything goes. Okay, so you have to admit that you're working in a pretty fucking cool industry. Why the hell would you leave to join this, like, trolly, annoying... Like, don't you just hit your head sometimes and you're like... The, the social level of these people that you deal with on, on, on not a day-to-day basis is just insane. Like, I see you on Twitter sometimes, and if my listeners want to really enjoy and have some good laughs, they should follow <laughs> Brian on Twitter. I mean, how do you, you're dealing with big-boy government people... Um, bureaucrats, and you got to deal with crypto people. Like, how do you how do you deal well, with I mean, that? You know, one of the most frustrating things about working in like the government space or like at large companies with this is that you have people higher up that don't necessarily grasp it, and and they want to like poke holes in it always. And it's like you have to continually justify to these people like wh- why it exists, like why we should be looking at it, using it, working with it. It's very it's very frustrating. It's tedious. I think you know now. You know, working in my own space, it's like I only have to work with the people that really believe in this stuff. You know, I'm dealing with people that are passionate about it. It, It's, you know, it's just it's a completely different approach. And now I don't know. It's been four over four years since I worked, you know, back at a large company like that or with government. 
so maybe they, they've changed a little bit, but it was just so hard. I mean, it's just like you ended up, you, stayed, you stood out like a, you know, a sore thumb, you know, just, yeah, oh, it's the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin guy, you know, oh, how much did you lose this week? You know, it's like that kind of stuff constantly. Like you aren't taking it seriously. Now at those classified agencies, there's a little bit more experimental though. You know, they're like willing to expend some resources to see if this stuff will work. You know, like, okay, we got some skunk works, you know, Bitcoin stuff. But they're also like, I mean, the majority of their money was being spent on like, how do we use money pack for these kinds of things? How do we, you know, how do we exploit the existing banking system? Like those things were, you know, magnitudes more important than cryptocurrency. I don't understand why the government just couldn't create like a new, like a shadow bank and then just use that. Like, why not just do something like that? Why have to go down and use things like Tor and Bitcoin to, to, to move money around the world? I mean, the U.S. government controls the financial system anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, you, I mean, I can't even share, you know, about about things that they do. But, but you know, they use existing. Yeah, I mean, they use existing <laughs> infrastructure and in ways you would be very surprised. Um, you know, like you think about... Um, you know, like how, how, okay, for instance, like how would a CIA agent get like a, a, a fake cover? Like, they, you know, the CIA does not like go to the DMV and say, hey, we're going to do this illegal thing with these fake identities. Can you give us a bunch of fake identities? Right? Like, they, they, there's like, there, there are special they setups do like, that? where, you know, they go to certain places. Yeah. So, They've printed um, stuff, yeah. you know, they find ways around this stuff, but they don't necessarily like rig it. Like they kind of have to find exploits themselves so that everything, you know, it just operates as normal and they're kind of like living within us. Normally, because people will audit these things and they don't want it to be known. It's very interesting how that works. Yeah, and it happens across a bunch of different areas. And, um, Um, you know, in terms of crypto, I mean, let's, I mean, there's things like, um, let's say someone wants to like purchase some cryptocurrency, you know, for, with a fake identity. Like a CIA guy is going to buy some crypto to take to Libya. Um, you know, how can he do that? He can't go to Coinbase and, to be, and get like a level three verified identity with like a fake driver's license, right? It's like not going to clear. It's not going to hit the DMV databases and they're going to prove it. So maybe they go to like a third party, uh, you know, Coinbase runs all their identity stuff to a third party verifier, right? Okay, let's go to the verifier. Let's set up something with them. Now Coinbase doesn't even know. Like they just asked the verifier, "Hey, is this guy a real identity?" Oh yeah, he's all good. Next thing you know, you're buying crypto on Coinbase with your fake identity. You know, something like that. And so oh, wow. you know, there's things that like these companies don't even know. They think that they're complying, and yet they're complicit in these kind of you know uh, KYC issues. <laughs> they don't even know it. So there's all kinds of little things like that 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 uh, you know those agencies are working with. Did you did you think that Open Bazaar would be your foray into the space? I mean, did you plan for it when you no. when you fork? Like, I mean, it just seemed like it was you just pushed a button and here you are. I mean, how did it all go play out? Oh God, yeah. So at the time, I you know, like I was saying, like I, I had done a few like you know like typo corrections on, on Bitcoin Core, submitted a PR here and there for that, and it was just getting nowhere. So I was looking for a product to work on. So when dark market hit, it was just awesome. It's fascinating. You know, like, this is amazing. 
And uh, a lot of people felt that way. They thought it was great. And they, they, they open sourced the code. So I was like, all right, this is a perfect opportunity. It's like a ground floor project. Seems really approachable. Is written in Python, something new. I'll get involved. And when I reached out to them, you know, Amir was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Like, we won the money. You were everything that Amir despised. At the time, though, I was a rather, like, it was like nobody, you know. Like, I don't, I don't even think he spent a half second trying to figure Probably out who didn't. it was. Um, I knew him here very well in those days. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... He didn't trust anyone. Oh, no. And I don't think he had any reason to. I mean, I remember when I reached out to him and said I wanted to work on it, he was like, just fork it. And there's a bunch of people that want to fork it. So we're going to just list all the forks in the in the uh, dark market repo, like on the readme. It'll just say, hey, here's, here's all the implementations of dark market. And I was like, okay. So he put us in there as the first one. And I think we still to this day are like the only one. I think if you go to github.com slash dark market, I think that I believe, or maybe it's dark wallet slash dark market. But anyway, if you find that repo, I think we're, it just links to open bazaar. And, um, and that's how we, uh, you know, that's how we did it. So, um, we just forked it and started working on it. And then it just became more and more popular very quickly because people were very interested in the idea. Um, and you'd be surprised at how many dark market kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah. He, Amir kind of dropped the project a little bit once well, he took I it mean, over. Well, I mean, when I emailed him, I emailed him at his RiseUp account because I was on the RiseUp mailing list. And he mm-hmm. replied back and said, look, we're not doing this. Like, we, it's too much. Like, we're it's a great idea, but we're not doing that right now. Like, we, we won the money. I think he was scared himself. Yeah. I, see, I don't I don't know about all that because I never had too many extended conversations with him about it. Like, basically, when we forked it and he kind of relinquished it, it got a life of its own and then... You know, he he was our, he was more interested in dark wallet with Cody, and they had t- they were winning that money in the Toronto Hackathon for dark market. I, th- I think that they won that money in order to keep funding dark wallet essentially. Um, so which also got kind of dropped. So I don't, I mean, I don't know Amir really 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 well, uh, but you know, I think he got the solution. It seems like from a lot of perspectives in terms of what you know where Bitcoin was going and got interested in like the Rojava stuff and, and all that. So they kind of took him away from it. But, you know, when we rebranded it to Open Bazaar, which was, you know, basically out of respect for the dark something brand, you know, it's like you have dark wallet, you have dark market. We didn't kind of want to like commandeer that since they weren't working on it. Um, and so we just kind of forked it into Open Bazaar. And, and, and Where'd you get the name Open Bazaar from? Well, I mean, I ran through my head a million times, like what free markets, all these things like just seem silly, but actually, um, I just it clicked because my wife is Iranian and the bizarre thing kind of popped up into my head and then open, you oh, know, yeah. so a market bizarre is a decentralized market. Yeah. A shook. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, we, we felt like that's exactly what it was, right? It was like, you know, you go to a bazaar, it's like this huge conglomeration of all these like different vendors, like. They're all existing. You're you're talking with them. You're negotiating. You're haggling. You're like doing all these things, but like it's more social than Amazon, you know. And that we were just taking that kind of world global market online, and so it seemed like a really good fit. But um, in hindsight, like it's it seemed like a pretty good name. I mean, people people always comment on it, say it's clever. What are your? I mean, I'm not going to say political views, but what are your life views on the role of governance? I'll tell you why I ask because you know what you're building and I've, and I've said it before, it is a, a socioeconomic experiment. It's 
let's build an open bazaar that people can use and act, react, um, and do without having like an up, like a, like a, a regulator or a manipulator being involved and, and whatever you want to say about it, it's an experiment, right? Um, it's a human experiment. So obviously what drives you, of course, you're capitalist, you want to make money, but what drives you maybe, and tell me if I'm wrong, is this wanting to see how that would play out. But at the same time, you did work on government contracts and things like that. So what I'm curious is like, had you grown up a libertarian or were you always someone who believed in the role of government and then worked in the government and then now you like ha- have things changed for you? Yeah, my, my political views have changed a lot over the years. I mean, I remember in college, you know, I went to a predominantly white college in Virginia, you know, in Western Virginia. So, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of that kind of, you know, good old boy mentality. Preppy yeah, and, you know, so, you know, 9-11 happened, I, you know, while I was at school, you know, and I voted for George Bush at the time and was very supportive of the whole, you know, approach we took to the Middle East at the time. And then I got out of school, you know, and I started working in the D.C. area, which is much more diverse. Um, and, you know, I met my wife who, whose parents are like, they just came over from Iran and like she's first generation. And, you know, it just becomes much more complicated. You're working with a lot of Indian and Asian people. And you learn that there's more out there than just like this, like hardcore hillbilly, you know, white culture from Virginia. So, you know, my ideals have kind of shifted a lot more to like, well, what, let's think more about people and, you know, what are we doing globally here? And so it kind of shifted to the other side. But then as I started working with Bitcoin, then it starts to go in a different direction, you know, with the libertarian piece. And and so my, my ideals are like all mixed up. Uh, in terms of like, you know, picking things from here and there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're but I find now. it so fascinating. Um, I, you know, one of my co-founders, Sam Patterson, he's, you know, he's, he's a pretty, you know, strict libertarian and, you know, like, you know, a lot of, he's very convicted to a lot of his, his thoughts on that. And um, I'm not as like fixed in my thinking, you know, I'm very open-minded, but you know, I do believe in one thing is that, you know, I, I want fairness for people. I want people to be treated properly and I want everybody to have a great opportunity to succeed in life. And I think that, you know, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, you know, blockchain, decentralized, you know, networks, these kind of, you, you know, it's an opportunity for technology to help us, you know, empower people around the world. And, and you know, technology is my passion. Like, it's my background, it's what I work in, it's what I'm always interested in. So I'm trying very hard to, like, make sure that my skills and stuff go towards positive things like that. And... You know, it's hard. It's hard sometimes, though. You hear people criticize, you know, products like Open Bazaar. You know, a lot of these, like, people that are trying to be very, like, compliant and regulatory uh, friendly. And they, they kind of look at projects like ours and they, they get scared. And I'm saying, you know, like, you know, what? when did we... Yeah. I mean, like, when did we get into the mentality that, like, everything is, the, you know, set by these rules is, like, what, the way it's supposed to be? Yeah. I, I know. It's After nine like, eleven, we people did. People tell you take off your shoes. You're like, okay, you know, <laughs> it's just you know, we're just so scared of like what happens if that if, if, if it's not, you know, if you don't follow the rules. That's a that's a great example. We we at my house, we I like my floor, so we asked people to take off their shoes, and I had um, someone in the crypto space come come and stay over for the weekend. I have a lot of guests, and I won't say who, but he's a very he's an awesome guy. Anyways, he stayed over a few a few months ago. And I asked him, actually, I said, can you please take off your shoes? And he's like, no. And I was like, 
what do you mean? No. He goes, I don't, you don't want me to take off my shoes. I was like, you know what? All right. I'll clean my floors <laughs> yeah. when you leave. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the same, same for me. Um, you know, I grew up wearing shoes in the house, so it's a little weird, but, um, but yeah, but I think, you know, there's a, you know, I, I find a lot though within like the crypto space and like in the libertarian space that the people are very much willing to say no. I mean, you go to the airport it's like, I'm going to like opt out, you know, I'm going to do all these things. And it was like, to me, it never like occurred to me to be like, no, I've never opted out before, but, and, and, and I've seen Roger do it. I traveled with Roger once in 2013, I think. And he would say, no, I'm like, Roger, please. Can we just, because we traveled around the world <laughs> yeah, together and yeah. I, I have pictures. I'm like, Roger, please. Can we just go through this? I want to go home. And he's like, no. I was like, oh my God. And I have videos and he's just getting patted down and the TSA, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle him. It's funny though that the that like TSA or like law enforcement, it's like when you exert your rights, they're like exhausted by that. They're like, oh, yeah, they're just gonna use, another one. You're gonna, do, you're gonna <laughs> use your rights? Okay, fine. You know, it's like why? But uh, but you know, yeah, people are busy. They just you know, it's easy for people to comply and just go on with their life. And that's the same thing that Open Bazaar is trying to solve. And then I think that's one of the, cha- the biggest challenges we have as a project uh, and as a business is getting people to break out of that, like, I don't care, I just want to get shit done kind of mentality. You know, it's like, it's like okay, I know that you can just go to Amazon and do this, but, like, do you understand what's happening when you're when you're doing these things? Brian, I think it comes down to motivation. I think that even when you, when you got involved in 2014, that was still, I mean, and how you got involved was still very much a... We need to change the world. We're ideological. We want to break shit and see what happens mentality. That mentality doesn't exist anymore. No, I shouldn't say that. It's not as prevalent as it was. And it's not the main motivation to why people get involved in the space. I mean, you know this. People got into the space over the past two, three years for money, for, 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 to, to pump ICOs. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, so the mentality is not there anymore, really, as it was, and what really moved. I still think that some of the largest breakthroughs and movements that we've broken through as a, as a community have happened between 2013 and 2015. Yeah, and I I completely blame that ICO uh, culture of really kind of like discouraging the Bitcoin growth you know, in terms of like development and innovation. And I think it started, it just fomented that whole store of value argument and all this like settlement layer talk, because, you know, we saw it as a project is, you know, you had early on, there were only a few really cool projects you could work on. Like, I mean, if I listed off the the people that actually contributed code or ideas in Open Bazaar's early days, you'd be so surprised. I mean, they were blockstream, they were Coinbase, they're like really well-known people. Really? Yeah. And, I mean, we extended offers to several people that went and worked at Blockstream and other companies. And so, you know, it's like, you know, who's who roster of, of, of people in the space now. And well, as much. But let me tell you something for a second. As much as people like and, I, and I'm not the one to defend Brian Armstrong. I've been a, a critic, but of Coinbase. But I was in the room with Brian in 2013 at his house at a barbecue with Tony Gallippi, Roger Veer, Jared Kenna. And Brian was working at Airbnb at the time, and he said, I want to start this 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 company called Coinbase. And I said, Brian, why? <laughs> and he told me why. And it was basically because he wanted to open up the world to cryptocurrency. But Bitcoin wasn't trading 
very Hyatt. Then there was no, it wasn't a crazy moneymaker. Sure. He was one of the first Silicon Valley people. And, um, but, but his motivations were, were, were a lot purer than people think it was. Well, yeah, but you know, I have to understand that like things get out of hand really quickly. I mean, we went from like a little open source product that we just worked on at night to being a startup that was invested in by Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square. And like, you know, we were in Wired Magazine. I didn't even know I was in Wired Magazine. You got the big boys. I didn't even know I was in Wired Magazine. Like they published an article (laughs) about it, citing my name in Wired. And I was still working at Booz Allen. And my boss called me from like Cleveland. He had had taken a flight and he just grabbed a Wired Magazine to read on the flight. And he read the article and he called me immediately when he landed. He's like, is this you? Like, what is this? Like, what are you talking about? No. I mean, so what happened? Really, really awkward because they were like, I mean. This is yeah, the untold I mean, story right here. It was it was insane. And like, he sits in the magazine. I was like, oh, shit. So I ran down to Barnes & Noble and bought the magazine. I'm like holding it like as I'm checking out. I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. And we're like reading it. And I'm like, shit, what am I going to say? Because it looks legit. You know, it sounds like some serious product. Yeah, Wired Magazine made it look, I remember that article. And yeah. my boss like, calls me in and he's like, what, are you doing this during work hours? Like, what's going on? Like, and I was <laughs> like, it's just a side project. And I think they already knew I was into Bitcoin, but they're like, what's going on? And it just got more and more awkward. But like pretty soon after that, we started negotiating the deal with, with the investors. And so, you know, so like, yeah, it just kept getting weirder and weirder. And then I remember my boss was like, you got to choose this or that. And like, and like, oh, we had, ch- you got to choose between the government or going over to the dark yeah. side. No pun yeah, intended. I was like, okay, well, I'll let you know. And like th- the next day <laughs> I went in there and I was like, I quit because we, we closed the deal and everything. And he was like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm doing the Bitcoin thing. And he's like, well, you're welcome back whenever this fails. No, he didn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was dead serious. And I was just like, okay. And then I, that moment was so scary because it was like, yeah, we had this like backing of these investors, but like, they backed. Did you think people were going to follow you or something? Like, did they see, they maybe see it as a threat? Like, I know Nobody it sounds I worked like, with. in the back of your head, you were like, whoa, you know, I have all these secrets or whatever, and I'm leaving the government uh, to work in Bitcoin. Nobody that I worked with uh, was in anywhere near as much as me. I mean, there were a couple of people that were like somewhat interested, but like, just very casually. Um, so I was that crazy yeah. guy that left. Uh, this is a good movie <laughs> plot, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, yeah, it was, it was a weird. I mean, they were, a lot of people were proud because you know it's, it's an accomplishment to get those kinds of investors interested. But, uh, but I think they were. Of course, Andreessen Horowitz is like getting. Uh, I mean, getting. Um, it's the number one investor in the world. I mean, that's they don't take. You don't call yeah, them; they and call you. Think about it, like. I think right after they invested in us, I think that that was pretty much it in terms of like really traditional companies. I think they started looking more at like, you know, doing their crypto fund and stuff. Like, so there were only a handful of startups that they that were like real true startups, you know, Coinbase, a media chain, which got bought by Spotify, you know, uh, Blockstack, which was one name, us. And I don't know, there might be like one other one that I'm, I'm leaving out. But, but that was it. And then it kind of just stopped investing in crypto companies. And we were like, oh, no, like this is their roster, you know, and feel like a lot of pressure to be successful, especially with a big company like that or a big uh, fund. Um, so, you know, and, and things have changed a lot. I mean, I got I remember having conversation with Chris Dixon and Silicon Valley when we were trying to raise like our second round and 
you know, he's like, well, what do you think of Ethereum? And I remember being like, oh, Ethereum's like a clown project, you know, like the real developers are on Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> like we didn't, didn't feel like Ethereum was like really it. And, you know, sure. we missed the mark a lot on that. I think we really missed out on being so myopic in terms of just Bitcoin and nothing else. I think there's like some really, really cool people, great uh, products and, and things like that in that space. And, you know, I mean, like you said, it's, an ex- it's all an experiment. Like for, for anyone, even Bitcoin, to sit here and say this is not an experiment still, it's just it's being very like, you know, it just you're just blinding yourself. Like we just have to be realistic about that. You know, some of this stuff is going to get pulled in across different projects and can be useful. It may not. I mean, 99% may be crap, but if you're not open-minded about it, then you're never going to find the 1% that's actually good. So, um, you know, we missed the boat on that a little bit. Behind every great man is a great woman or behind every great woman is a great man. Um, from what you told me, your wife fled or just left Iran into to the U S has, has what she went through, um, changed or opened up your eyes to different viewpoints around the world? Well, so my wife is first generation. She was actually born in Chicago, but her parents came over for college opportunity like weeks before the wow. revolution in Iran in 79. So um, that was really dramatic for them because they were, you know, her mom was getting letters from her grandmother saying, it's really bad here. Like, you just don't come back. You have to stay there. And so they chose to stay in the States where they didn't speak English and didn't have any opportunities other than like school and what they were going to do after that, you know, and, and didn't try to figure it out. And, you know, I think, you know, my wife was lucky to have that because, you know, she grew up speaking Farsi and understanding like that there's another part of this world and like incorporating that into our viewpoints. And I think that's, you know, that's rubbed off a lot on me. I mean, I've, you know, I'm really close with their family. They live close by. And, you know, I think it's, it's been really, really good. I mean, I, I think, on, you know, from, for them coming you know, her background is from a country that U.S. is practically at war with, you know, and, and trying to understand those viewpoints. Which is so stupid. It's so important. It, it is stupid. And, and you know, you see a lot of that now within, like, the crypto space between these different products and stuff is you see these stupid fights. You know, when we're all kind of trying to do the same thing, we're trying to do the right thing, and, you know, you get hung up on stupid things. But, um, but it's something you have to navigate, you know, and it's... Yeah, it's it's really hard. You gotta like be very patient, and you know, I, you know, just like you you mentioned a couple times on the podcast so far, is like I, I try to inject some humor into the situations, you know. Sure. Be doing these like funny videos where you dub over people's voices and things, you know, just to kind of bring some humor to situations. And you know, for the most part, most people like are are fine with it. You know, like people that do the videos about like contact me and they're like, oh, that was so funny. Like this is great. You know, but some people just take it so seriously. And, you know, it's like... I think a little too seriously because they're very passionate about it, but um, trolling in this industry can flare up sometimes and get a little bit too much. But we just make fun of it more. Yeah, I think the people that take themselves too seriously are the ones that they end up hurting themselves, you know? Like, you know, the whole Craig Wright debacle. I mean, that guy, he, he clearly takes himself extremely seriously. And, you know, I mean, that's that's where people find, like, you know, something to pick at. I can't talk about him. I don't want to get sued again. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's another thing too. You know, it's like that just causes even more, you know, backlash. So, what's 
what's the future for Open Bazaar? What do you see? When can you sit back and say, "All right, we've we've been successful in the, in this in this experiment or this this business idea"? Man, that's you know, I can ask that question. I mean, I just just continuously that's a, that's growing. A, you know, well, you have to understand why I'm asking. You're not just, and I, you know this. It's you're not just another crypto startup. You are taking what you are doing is you're taking one of the killer apps for crypto for Bitcoin, and you're you're bringing it to market, bringing it to life. So your success is our success. Your failure could be our failure. Not to not to try to put pressure on you, but you are leading the charge in that and building that free market. And a lot of people are watching. And, and what happens um, if you succeed and when you reach a critical mass? You'll see a lot of other projects take that similar technology and say, take those similar concepts and do 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 things like that based yeah, on your I mean, success. I, it's weird. It's like I, I feel we're pretty alone sometimes, you know, in a lot of ways because we're kind of like one of the last vestiges of like the true Bitcoin use cases, like the core use cases that aren't like these layer two extensions and all this stuff. You know, I mean, think about you see like companies like BitPay and all these guys are like kind of scaling back their point of sale stuff, you know. Most of the spend it Bitcoin people are breaking off into Bitcoin Cash or, or something else, you know, and it's just like, well, what, who, who, who are like the big like let's spend Bitcoin people, you know, like get a gift, you have, you know, all these different things, and and they're just kind of purse, you know, it's pretty quiet recently. Oh um, man, purse! I haven't heard from person forever. What are they doing? Yeah, I, I you know, every once in a while, uh, I talk with them, and you know, it's just like same old, same old. You know, there's nothing. There's no like big, huge things that are going to get, you know, that people are getting excited about in terms of that. But we are actually, and this is pretty exciting for us because it's been a long time coming, is that we're like a week or two out from releasing our mobile app, which we call Haven. And that's a big deal because 90% of things that are going on are happening on the Oh, yeah, definitely. And like we're going through our final beta test right now. We've got like over 250 people like using the app. And how will that work though? Aren't these app stores like centrally controlled? Yeah, it's and the whole premise of Open Bazaar is that it's a you know it's a peer to peer. Oh, it's network. a real pain in the ass. So, um, so you know, Android and and, Google and uh, Apple are, are two different groups as well. So, you know, Android is like super open. You know, as long as the app's not crashing for the most part or you're doing something egregious, they're pretty flexible. And we've seen that throughout our, our process. And right now, we're still currently working our way through the Apple process. There's a lot of things that, um, you know, a lot of feedback that they've given us. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Like the first review, they like found like THC vape pens or something. And it was like immediate rejection. So, so, you know, it's like, they're, they're on, they're like, I mean, they're searching for heroin and every and hitman and all these things. Like, like they, they know what's going on. And that creates a, a very big challenge for us with, when you have this flexible marketplace that people can do anything on. But the key to the thing is, you know, our Haven app on the app, on the iOS app store is going to be a much more constrained experience than the desktop on That's just the way it is. But you can kind of think of it as BitTorrent, right? The network itself is uncensorable. So, you know, if you operate on Apple... Okay, I get it, it now. Just, it's just not going to be that, like, complete anarchistic movement. But what it will do... Will you tell people, though? Will you, like, give some sort of, like, hey, you're using this on your phone. These are the 
the freedoms that you're giving up here. <laughs> we tried that and Apple didn't like that. We actually, no, you yeah, didn't really they flagged it. And then, so, so <laughs> we, we kind of pushed our luck a little bit. We like had this pop up, like when you try to, but that's what you're supposed to yeah, do. Yeah. Well, we put up a little pop up and said like, you know, you can go to, you know, get open bazaar or like get the Android app and do it. And they were like, no, you can't like crap on Apple. Oh my God. That's great. <laughs> you can't crap on Apple when you're like talking about this stuff. So <laughs> they didn't like that. They were on that right away. So we're, we're still trying to, you know, negotiate essentially with them, but we're, we're pretty close. Like I think we got past all those issues and we're looking really good. So we're excited to get it out. But you know, I think the idea behind it is like, we're trying to build a private shopping application, you know, that uses cryptocurrency that will introduce people to this world. And if they're like, wow, I need expanded capabilities, you know, like then we have the desktop and we're actually working hard to try and figure out how to get it onto the web. So it's just browser based and that, that will create this, you know, you, what you said, where are we going to go in the future? That's what I want to see. This ubiquitous, like open decentralized web app, you know, that, that does everything it can. And you know, all you have to have is a phone in a browser or a computer in a browser. And, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's where we want to go. So people will use it like just all the time. Um, but, but Haven is a good step forward. I think it's a, it's a pretty mainstream friendly app. Um, and it's a huge uh, deal. Yeah. We're really excited. It's been years in the making really. Well, congratulations. And how can people follow your progress? Uh, well, I mean, obviously follow me on Twitter at Brian C. Hoffman and at open bazaar on Twitter, um, for the, for the open bazaar project. And, at Haven Privacy for our Haven, and that's that's pretty much it. I mean, we've got a Slack community that's pretty, you know, it's growing fast. We, a lot of our developers, people are really deeply interested in things. But um, otherwise, the social feeds are where we uh, we announce everything. So, and we're going to be, you know, as part of the launch for Haven, we're going to be doing some really exciting stuff. Like we're going to have some like really really uh, cool uh, promotions that we're going to run. So. Um, definitely want to check that out and that's going to be happening awesome we'll link to it the links are in the show notes and everyone can check it out thank you so much for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me hey everyone thanks for listening this episode of untold stories is sponsored by eToro the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over one trillion dollars in trading volume per year U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with low and transparent fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your crypto portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world, myself included, to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account at eToro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at cryptomining.tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.